Welcome back to Insights Unlocked. In this episode, Teresa Torres talks about the importance of getting customer input earlier in the product development lifecycle to better dial in product market fit and reduce wasted costs. You'll often hear folks describe this as shifting left. And thank you all for helping make the start of this season so successful. We hit number one in Apple's technology charts. You can help us stay in the top 10. I'll send copies of Teresa's book, Continuous Discovery Habits, to the first, third, and seventh people to leave a comment in this episode's newsletter over on LinkedIn. And while you're there, subscribe to the newsletter. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Insights Unlocked, an original podcast from User Testing, where we bring you candid conversations and stories with the thinkers, doers, and builders behind some of the most successful digital products and experiences in the world, from concept to execution. Welcome to the Insights Unlocked podcast. I'm Nathan Isaacs, Senior Manager for Content Production at User Testing. And joining me today is Teresa Torres. Teresa is the author of Continuous Discovery Habits, as well as an international speaker and coach. She teaches a structured and sustainable approach to continuous discovery that helps product teams infuse their daily product decisions with customer input. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Thanks, Nathan. I'm excited to be here. You published uh, Continuous Discovery Habits uh, a few years ago, and the book has been a hit with more than 80,000 sold. Uh, can you tell us about its premise and why do you think it's been so successful? Yeah, we're actually weeks away from crossing the 100,000 mark, which is blows my mind. Uh, just I, you know what, I, I talked to a couple of publishers when I was writing the book and they informed me that like a good nonfiction selling book sells 10,000 copies over the life of the book. And I was like, no, I'm going to sell more books than that. But I never dreamed, like my, my goal in the first year was to sell 15,000 copies. And we sold 30,000, 35,000, I think, in the first year. Um, and then it's just continued to sell really strongly. And I, here's what I'm gonna say. I think it has sold well because I ran the exact same process to write the book as you will read in the book. So the book is all about uh, how do you build products that your customers actually want and will use. Right, so starting with an outcome, this is what we're trying to achieve. How do we learn from our customers about what they need, what their unmet needs, pain points, and desires are, and then how do we design solutions to closely match that? And I, when I wrote the book, I had an outcome in mind. I really wanted to create a guide for product teams for how to work this way. Um, and I, the outcome that kind of drives my whole business is to increase the number of teams who work this way. And then. Um, I had been coaching for years before I wrote the book, so I had a good sense of where product teams struggled, what they needed help with. Um, not only had I been coaching them, we'd already started to design online courses, and we're using our courses as a way to get feedback on the content and what was working and what was not working. And then as I wrote the book, I ran an early readers program, and I got feedback from people as they read the book. And the feedback wasn't just, did you like the chapter? What I really focused on was what behavior change happened as a result of reading the chapter. And so I put a lot into, can I really turn this into a handbook that guides the way that teams work? Uh, and e even so, in my wildest dreams, I did not think it would be this successful. It has been mind blowing how many people have read it, how many people I hear from, how many people have shared that it's just changed the way that they work. And so it's uh, very humbling and uh, amazing. Is it, uh, and it's worldwide, right? It's uh, yeah, worldwide. And is it just product teams, or is it 
you know, from across, you know, all the different backgrounds? Do you know? So it's funny. A lot of people think about this as a product management book. I did not write it as a product management book. I think discovery is a team sport. So one of the ideas in the book is that discovery should be done by product trios, um, ideally a product manager, a designer, and a software engineer. Uh, I managed to piss off the entire user research community. I did not mean to do that. Uh, I think if you have a user researcher, they should be part of that trio and make it a quad. Um, I will repeat that a thousand times and still get a lot of hatred about leaving them out in the first place. Uh, here's the deal. I didn't intend to leave them out. Uh, most companies, sadly, don't have user researchers on staff. I was trying to write a book that related to most companies, not the bleeding edge that has that luxury. Um, but yeah, I really, like, regardless of what roles you have available to you at your company, the core idea of that product trio is this should be a cross-functional team effort. We need to get everybody who's involved in building the product working together when deciding what to build and working together uh, when engaging with customers and understanding customer needs. You kind of answered this, my next question, by talking about how you wrote the book yourself. Um, more than $2 trillion is lost annually due to rework. How could continuous discovery change that? Yeah, so we're always going to have rework, right? Like, what's, what's, I think what's really changed with the internet is that, like, when we built products in the past, we had one measure of success. Did people buy it? We all know, though, that it's not enough to buy a product, right? We can buy a product and we can have some commercial success. But if the customer doesn't find that product useful after buying it, eventually we're going to see that show up in our revenue numbers because they're not going to be repeat buyers. They're not going to renew if we're talking about a subscription. They're not going to buy again if we're talking about a uh, used up product. And what we see on the internet is now we can finally see um, usage. We can see what do people do with our products. Um, and uh, what we're learning is that, unfortunately, more often than not, they're not using them to the degree we thought, or they're not using them in the way that we thought. And we're seeing this big gap in between, between what we expected and what's happening in reality. I suspect this gap has always been there, right? Like when you went to the store and you bought laundry detergent, uh, the, the um, consumer goods company has no idea if you use the laundry detergent. They just know that you bought it, right? But we've all bought products that didn't work for us, and they, we give them away, they sit on the shelf, uh, we throw them away and they end up in landfill. We're now getting a really clear window into what do you do with the product after you buy it. And so uh, we're seeing that it's not quite what we expected. It's actually far worse than we expected. And even the best teams has really, have really high fail rates. So I think the key is it's not that we're going to get rid of the rework. It's always going to happen. We're always going to fall short of what we expect. I think that's just reality, and that's because we can't like fully get in another person's head and match the need exactly. I think the key with discovery is how do we have that rework happen when it's really inexpensive? So how do we have rework when we're prototyping, when we're drawing designs on whiteboards and pencil sketches, and when it's easy to change them? Um, before we've written all the code, before we've done all the production quality work? How do we um, have these mistakes and rework and iteration happen um, when it's basically cost-free? Whereas right now, a lot of companies, they have this rework happen uh, after they've done all the work. And that's where this $2 trillion uh, number comes from, right? We're spending a lot of money on the rework. I don't think we can get rid of the rework. I think we can get rid of the cost of the rework. I love that. I love that. The... Um one of the things that you, the book and you advocate is, you know, meeting regularly with customers. I, I think you 
you mentioned like even doing this weekly uh question is, is like how do you prioritize what you're learning from those interactions and and apply those insights like you, it could be overwhelming i think for some people so how do you make you know take direction with that yeah i think there's a couple things to think there's a couple ways to think about this the first is i like to think about this as what's our generative research and what's our evaluative research so um, in the book, I talk about discovering opportunities versus discovering solutions. So opportunities are unmet customer needs, pain points, and desires. This is generative research. How are we, like, it helps us generate ideas. It helps us generate knowledge about our customer. It's helping us, like, um, it's sort of the uh, go out and explore research. How do we pull from the market uh, where there's possibility, right? Evaluative research is more like, is the thing we're building the right thing? So this is more in the discovering solutions side of things. And um, these aren't two different types of research. They actually work together, right? Because ideally, we're using generative research to uncover sort of a problem statement or a um, customer need or a pain point. And then we want to discover a solution. Um, and we're looking for like a, a close match between those, almost like a lock and key, right? So they're moving together. And so on the generative side, I really like to see teams start with an outcome. What are you trying to achieve as a team? This could be anything from like, uh, we're trying to get you to watch Netflix more. We're trying to get, in my case, we're, I'm trying to get more teams to adopt continuous discovery. It could be um, any number of things. We're trying to get you to send more uh, email because we're an email tool, whatever, right? Um, and then as we interview our customers, I want to start with a broad generative interview. And usually that's of the form, tell me about the last time you experienced some problem that your product is designed to solve. So when I do my own research, I ask people, tell me about the last thing your team released. And let's start all the way at the beginning. Where did the idea come from? And I'm listening for, like, where do ideas emerge from? What kind of research was behind that? Did they, dis did they evaluate it? Was it based on generative research? If I work at somewhere like Netflix, I might ask, tell me about the last time you watched TV. Tell me about the last time you watched streaming entertainment. I can get more focused. Tell me about the last time you searched for a new show to watch. Right? The goal of these interviews is to explore. We're trying to uncover the opportunity space. Where are their unmet customer needs, pain points, and desires? And that's helping us frame where can we help? Where can we contribute to our customers' lives? And then we, we want to pair that with these more evaluative methods. And this is where we can do evaluative interviews, where we give someone a prototype and we interview them about what they think about that prototype. Um, but I like to think about evaluative um, research more as assumption testing where we're breaking our ideas down into their underlying assumptions, what needs to be true for this solution to work, and then running really targeted assumption tests to evaluate those. And what we're evaluating is how closely does that solution address that need? Are we really um, solving a customer need in a way that's going to drive our outcome? I'll let you uh, get a sip of water or whatever, and uh, I'll ask our next question. Um, how do you uh, see generative AI and AI in general shaping product development, continuous discovery, and talking with customers? I know it's something you've been thinking about. Yeah, really great question. The first thing I'm going to say is I am not a generative AI de denier, right? Like, I actually think this is one of the most um, amazing, exciting technologies. It, to me, it feels like 
1993, 1994, 1995. For those of you that are not familiar with that time period, this was the beginning of the World Wide Web. And uh, I was uh, literally learning how to make web pages as HTML versions were coming out. Like I remember literally getting excited about tables in HTML, right? And what was fun about that time period is anybody who could take like half an hour or an hour to learn about this new technology could start building, could start making. And I, that's how I feel about generative AI right now. Generative AI is taking um, builder tools and making them available to people that don't have computer science backgrounds, right? And it's, uh, I feel like we are on the verge of a pretty big radical shift in the way that software is built, in the way that, um, uh, not just the way software is built, but in the way that uh, the tools that we're using and how much more they'll be able to do for us. So like, I'm going to start by saying I am very excited about this technology. The reason why I'm starting with that, because I'm also going to say I don't think we're at the point where we can off outsource our discovery to generative AI. And I am a little bit concerned about some of the generative AI companies that are, for example, simulating customers. So instead of interviewing real customers, they're saying, just interview our synthetic customers where generative AI will pretend to be your customers. Here's the problem I have with this. Generative AI right now is a synthesis of like human knowledge, right? It's a, it's a chat bot that has the world's knowledge at its hands and it's able to create from that. That is really cool. It's not a human. It's not operating in a human context and it's not using our products. So unless you're building a product that's going to be used by generative AI, which we will have, we will have software for generative AI, it, unless that's who you are today, you still need to be interviewing real humans. right? That's just the reality. So I'm going to start there. Now, I do think these tools are good enough to help us with things like sentiment analysis. I think they're good enough to help us with, like, we have an archive of 100,000 support tickets. Help me summarize where our biggest pain points are. Um, I like to use generative AI in my own interviews, but I'm not going to outsource my interview synthesis to it. Here's what I do. So when I interview someone, I'm listening for where their unmet needs, pain points, and desires. So what are the opportunities that emerged from that interview? Now, I could give that transcript to ChatGPT and say, what are the opportunities? I've experimented with this. Here's the challenge. Today, and I'm going to put a date on this. I think it's January 15th, 2024, because in two weeks, this might be outdated. But today, ChatGPT is not very good at identifying opportunities. And I've done a lot of experimenting. I'm experimenting with custom GPTs. Can I train a custom GPT to be better at this? Where it's not very good, it doesn't get specific enough at all, not even close. And so I don't want to see teams outsourcing it. What I do is I generate the opportunities myself using my human brain, trying to get as specific as I can, using my expertise on what an opportunity is. And then I run the transcript through ChatGPT and ask it to do the same thing. And I look for, did it catch anything I missed? So I use it as a teammate. Now, if it did catch something I missed, I'm going back to the transcript and I'm making sure it wasn't a hallucination because hallucinations are real, they do happen. Uh, but I like doing this because sometimes ChatGPT uses a different framing. And I think discovery is a team sport because we all frame things differently, and that helps us pull more richness and more value out of our interviews. And we can, like if I'm on a team of one, which a lot of times I am, I can use ChatGPT to simulate a teammate, and that's really helpful. 
but I'm not taking what ChatGPT tells me as the truth. I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think ChatGPT is a great brainstorming partner. I use ChatGPT a lot to ideate and to get to more um, uh, potential solutions. Uh, I've experimented with it, using it to break down assumptions. Again, the specificity problem, I haven't been able to overcome. It just doesn't get specific enough. Uh, but I am really excited to like keep playing with these tools. I really want, um, I teach, um, my primary business at this point is I teach online. Um, I teach interviewing, I teach assumption testing. One thing that I'm really experimenting with is can I build tutors, uh, live interactive tools that our students can interact with to learn how to better frame an opportunity, to learn how to better frame an assumption test. I don't have something that feels releasable yet, but it's close. Like these tools are so cool, um, but we're not, don't outsource your discovery work to generative AI today. <laughs> maybe a month from now, we'll see. Yeah, maybe <laughs> next week. Uh, it's moving fast. It's moving fast. Uh, you know, I read that you uh, meet monthly with senior product leaders, and I'm just kind of yeah. curious, you know, what are the challenges they are facing and, and sharing with you, and are there common themes that have been building up here? Yeah, this is an experiment I started, I think, in October. So I think we've held four of these discussions. Uh, it's really simple. Um, you, so the requirements are you have to be a senior leader, meaning you manage multiple product trios that are doing discovery. So uh, typically, this is a chief product officer, a VP of product. It could be a chief design officer, a VP of design, a CTO, the engineering counterparts. It's not the product manager working with software engineers and a designer, although a lot of those people ask, it's not that. Um, it really is meant to be, you manage multiple teams. Um, here's what's unique about this population and what really motivated me to offer this. Uh, most of our product leaders grew up in a world that was not continuous discovery driven, right? It was more traditional, uh, we might have called it agile, but it probably looked more like mini waterfall. I love that term from Marty Kagan. Um, and they're trying to um, coach their teams into a new way of working that they may not have experienced themselves. So this is a really tricky situation, right? Like you could be a chief product officer, you've read the books, you've watched the podcasts, you've been to the conference talks, you've drank the Kool-Aid, you've bought into continuous discovery, but you yourself have never been on a continuous discovery team. So how in the world do you manage and coach your teams to work this way? So I wanted to create a space to bring those leaders together. The reason why I'm limiting it to those leaders is I want them to feel safe saying, I've never worked this way. Um, and what are the topics that come up? We've talked about anything and everything from like, how do we structure our teams to reduce dependencies between our teams? Um, how do we coach and evaluate our teams is really the hottest topic. Um, the biggest things that come up is the team say they don't have time to do discovery. How do we create time and space for them to do discovery? How do we help them build a habit? Um, how do we oversee their work? Like, how do we not micromanage? We want them to be empowered teams. How do we create space for them to do that? But we also are held accountable to their outcomes. So how do we make sure they're making progress to their outcomes and coach them through that? Um, it's a lot of fun. If anybody listening would like to join these calls, um, again, you have to be a senior leader. You can send an email to support at producttalk.org. Uh, let us know uh, who you manage and also what your biggest challenge is right now. And then if you meet the criteria, we'll add you to your mailing list and you'll get added to the next event. They're free. Uh, it's just a fun way uh, to stay connected. And um, 
We historically, my company, Product Talk, has historically worked at the team level. We focus exclusively on team training. This is sort of our first uh, dipping our toes into how do we better support leaders. We'll uh, include sh uh, links to all that in our show notes as well. Uh, Teresa, thank you so much for being on the show. How does someone learn more about you, take one of your courses, or reach out to schedule some training? Yeah, so if you're brand new to my work, I recommend just starting with the blog. It's producttalk.org. Um, you can cl click on the blog link. I think we're over like 250 free long-form articles all about how to do discovery. Um, in the footer of the homepage, you'll see our um, sort of uh, pillar posts. So there's one about discovery basics, there's one about interviewing, there's one about assumption testing. That's a great place to get started rather than just diving into what was most recent. Um, if that resonates with you, I do recommend picking up a copy of the book. It's not the typical business book at the 30,000 foot view. It's meant to be a practical hands-on guide. And then um, we know a lot of people reading a book is not enough. They want practice. And our online courses are all designed to get you hands-on practice. Um, you can also find those at producttalk.org as well. All right. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks, Nathan. This was a lot of fun. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find the show notes at usertesting.com slash podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, this is Insights Unlocked, an original podcast from User Testing.